Highlighting more female scientists and engineers from the Arab world is important because representation matters. We need to let the public know about the existence and accomplishments of modern scientists and engineers, both female and male. Um, in other words, do you think that the reception of an audience is affected by a journalist or a researcher's uh, identity? In your perspective, what, how do you see that the youth receive um, the concept that you introduced, science imagination? Now, as a historian, why do you think it is important to document these efforts made in the Arab world in the 19th and 20th century? I think it's important that we don't just talk about the things that went wrong. I think it's also important that we look at and celebrate the positive developments. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Science Journal. In this episode, we will be looking at the history of science in the Arab world and why journalists should care about this history. To help us understand all of this, we have our guest, Dr. Jörg Matthias Detterman, an Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar. Professor Detterman has published several books about science and the Muslim world. His latest one is titled Islam, Science Fiction and Extraterrestrial Life, the culture of astrobiology in the Muslim world. Hello and welcome, Professor. We are so happy to have you here and discuss science and the Muslim world. Thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful pleasure for me to be here. Thank you, Professor Detterman. With me today are my co-hosts and fellow students, Alyssa and Hagim. Before turning it over to them, I'd like to give the floor to Professor Anto Mohsen, who is our faculty mentor on this podcast project. Thank you so much, Nadia. I'm very happy to join my research assistants in welcoming you to our podcast episode, Matthias. You've kindly accepted my invitations in the past as a guest lecturer in two of my courses, one in the fall of 2018 and the other one in spring 2019. In fact, some of those students who were in either of those two courses are here with us today, Alyssa and Jasim. It's good to have you as a guest again. In 2018, at the Covering Arab Research Workshop at the Lebanese American University, you gave a talk titled, quote, Why Journalists Should Care About the History of Science in the Modern Middle East, end quote. Can you please tell us why journalists should care about this history? Shouldn't journalists focus on covering the latest and greatest about science? And how should journalists go about covering this history? Thank you so much, uh, Anto, for these great questions. Unfortunately, uh, but we live in a culture that is very presentist, that is very short-term oriented. Uh, and this is not just something that journalists are part of. This is really something that we can see in wider society. Uh, it's the breaking news culture. Uh, so what happened during the last five minutes? Uh, even if we don't really fully understand what, what just happened uh, during the last five minutes, that is often given priority on uh, news channels and not just in the media, uh, but in general. However, uh, we can't really fully understand what is really important if we don't have a longer term context. So 
there are thousands of academic contributions being published every day, scientific papers, book chapters, books coming out all the time. Uh, and for instance, right now, we're having a flood of research papers in epidemiology, virology, uh, connected to COVID-19. And probably every, uh, or most at least, scientists would like to get media attention. Uh, some of them might feel inclined that they should exaggerate their finding, that they should emphasize how their advance is particularly great, particularly profound, how their discovery is more important than all the other discoveries uh, that were announced that day, how their particular take on COVID-19 is more relevant than all the other COVID-19 papers that are published during that day. So if we as a society and if we as journalists want to understand, okay, which advances are really profound, which papers really deserve a lot of attention. We need to look at history. Uh, if we have all the entire history of virology, right, then we can perhaps better understand which virology paper out of the hundreds and thousands coming out all the time uh, are really worth uh, like our attention, our coverage, and so on. Uh, and there is a reason, for instance, why some of the greatest recognitions in science actually take some time. So, uh, for instance, during the mid-1990s, one of the first extrasolar planets uh, was discovered, one of the first exoplanets. Uh, and only, well, now, more than 20 years later, was the Nobel Prize uh, given for that discovery because it took time for the scientific community to understand, okay, out of all these discoveries in the 1990s, which one deserves the Nobel Prize? And that sometimes only a longer look back allows this, right? So in general, I would argue that journalists and our entire society should take the longer-term view should not obsess too much about what happened during the last five minutes or, or even the five, last five years. Uh, they should think more about, okay, what happened during the last 50 years in order to then understand what are the most profound trends for the next 50 years. Regarding the second part of the question, I think there are quite a lot of articles that reference the so-called golden age of Arabic and Islamic science. And that is great. Uh, it is wonderful that we celebrate uh, the Arabic and Islamic golden age. But this should not be our only focus uh, of attention. Uh, a lot of the portrayals of the Islamic golden age, uh, they are distorted in some ways. Uh, but they are very nostalgic. Uh, and I think that uh, that is mistaken. 
uh, because you don't want to be in a hospital of the Islamic golden age. It's much better to be in a hospital uh, of the modern age when we do have anesthesia, for instance, uh, and all the other advances. Uh, so another perhaps uh, thing to mention regarding the Islamic golden age is that there were great scholars, uh, great discoveries, wonderful theories, but most people in Muslim society were probably illiterate or close to illiterate. Uh, and if we look, for instance, at who are these great figures of the Islamic Golden Age, Ibn Rushd, uh, Ibn al-Haytham, uh, Ibn al-Satir, and so on. We have very few women, actually. Uh, so probably the modern age is a much better place for women in science. Uh, so I'm not saying we should not look at the Islamic Middle Ages. Absolutely, they deserve to be celebrated as a crucial period in human history. We should, however, also care about the kind of work that has been undertaken at universities and research institutes in the Muslim world and in the Arab world over the last uh, 50 years, uh, the last 100 years, we should celebrate and understand these scientists also because uh, there are so many of them. And we should, uh, like, we should get their names out. Uh, uh, unfortunately, if I look at a lot of media coverage uh, or even scholarly attention uh, on the modern Middle East, uh, a lot of the people who get these attention, get a lot of the attention are politicians, are revolutionaries, are terrorists, are Islamic scholars, fundamentalists, and so on. Thank you for your answer, Matthias. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Highlighting more female scientists and engineers from the Arab world is important because representation matters. We need to let the public know about the existence and accomplishments of modern scientists and engineers, both female and male. I'm now going to turn it over to one of the other co-hosts, Alyssa Mefle. Hello, Professor Matthias. It's so nice to have you. Um, speaking of identity and background, um, my question is about um, whether or not you think that a background of a journalist or researcher reporting about the history of science in the modern Middle East matters. Um, in other words, do you think that the reception of an audience is affected by a journalist or a researcher's uh, identity in such regards? Very good question. Uh, I think a lot of this social identities don't matter so much for a science journalist, uh, or at least they should not matter so much. I think what is important for a, a science journalist is that they should have some, uh, yeah, a good understanding of science, including the history of science. That does not need to mean a, a science degree, so they don't need to have a biology degree in order to write about biology, although it helps. Uh, 
but they should have some broad knowledge about the subject, right? Uh, so I think that helps. A science journalist is also a translator, right? Uh, so somebody who takes a scientific paper and translates it in a jargon-free manner uh, to a broad audience. Or a science journalist is somebody who interviews an academic and then tries to translate the words of the, of the academic uh, to a broader audience. So uh, in addition to a scientific training perhaps of some kind, also language training is important. And for instance, for Arabic newspapers, Arabic uh, news channels, uh, that would mean uh, a good training in Arabic. And this combination, I should say, is actually not, uh, yeah, not very frequent. So in many Arab countries, for instance, people who study sciences at university, people who do a physics degree, or people who do a biology degree, they study in English or in the Maghreb countries in French. They don't study physics in Arabic. And the people who study in Arabic, right, are often the people who study in Saniya to study humanities subjects. So uh, who study maybe Arabic literature or history or geography uh, and so on. And sometimes these people don't really understand the science and don't have the scientific vocabulary so I think it's more important that you have a background uh, that includes a knowledge, a training of some kind in language, in writing, in speaking well to a broad audience in Arabic or English or in when, whichever language you're communicating. And then also a, a good solid knowledge of, of the science you're trying to cover. Thank you for the answer. I just want to quickly follow it up uh, with another question. Um, you mentioned uh, about uh, studying in Arabic and such, and I know that you uh, are a fluent um, speaker in Arabic. Um, so do you think that that um, perspective has shifted the way that you understand this area of science uh, or the way you study it? Definitely. I think it is crucial, I mean, to understand uh, and at least be able to read uh, the languages of a region that you're studying. Uh, so for instance, if I was a historian of France or French scientists, and I would not speak French, I would probably be laughed at uh, if I was trying to write a book about French history uh, and French scientists and I did not speak French, uh, right? Uh, and probably I would be rightly laughed at. Uh, if I was trying to write a, uh, a book about Chinese scientists and I didn't speak any Chinese or I wasn't even able to read any Chinese, uh, then, yeah, people would probably question how deep that I could really go into that topic. Uh, so I think language is really crucial especially when it comes to context. A lot of scientific papers are published in English, right? 
uh, or, or French or European languages in general. Uh, so yes, if you are able to read English, uh, you can perhaps understand a lot of the output of an Arab scientist who is living and working today. Uh, however, there's always a broader uh, social context, uh, a cultural context, a cultural context that is also shaped by ideology, that is shaped by discourse. Uh, and uh, so there is a strong connection between nationalism and science. And when you go into, into nationalism, in order to fully understand the complexities and the nuances of nationalism, uh, you should look at the language. Uh, so to give you some examples, uh, the, right, the Arabic name for the Arab world is called, yes, you can use Al-Alam Al-Arabi, the Arab world, but more common, it is actually Al-Watan Al-Arabi. Uh, and Watan is, yes, it means nation, yes, it means world uh, in, some, in the sense of Arab world, but it also means homeland, right? Uh, so like really understanding the words, understanding uh, the, the connotations are, yeah, uh, like are important. And uh, scientists, they don't operate in a, an empty space. Scientists always exist within a culture and yeah, if you want to understand that culture fully, you need to understand the languages of that culture. Uh, thank you, Professor. And speaking of countries wanting national prestige, recently there has been tremendous progress in astronomy here in the Middle East, as the UAE's Hope Rope has just entered the orbit around Mars, which marks a great achievement not only for the region, but also for the world. And in your writing, you have written about observatories in the region, such as the Lee Observatory in Beirut and the Helwan Observatory outside of Cairo. Now, as a historian, why do you think it is important to document these efforts made in the Arab world in the 19th and 20th century, and even before that, and even going ahead as well? Thank you for this great question. When we look at coverage of the Middle East and also academic and lots of scholarly scholarly and popular writing on the Middle East. Unfortunately, there's a lot of focus on aspects of human suffering, whether it's um, oppression or revolutions or wars or conflicts, uh, right? If you, yeah, a lot of... Middle East coverage of the recent years, for instance, has focused on the war in Yemen and the war in Syria and the war in Libya and the conflict in Iraq and the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And yes, it is important that we talk about all these conflicts and the traumas and the suffering and the destruction. However, I think it's important that we don't just talk about the things that went wrong. I think it's also important that we look at and celebrate 
the positive developments, developments of building, of construction, of creativity, of invention, of discovery, right? Where, uh, where, where people were trying to, uh, yeah, to, to create something completely new. Uh, and artists are part of that story, uh, but definitely uh, sci uh, scientists too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we don't want to give all the coverage to people who engage in violence. Uh, but we also want to celebrate people who want to advance nations, countries, and humanity peacefully, for instance, through the creation of knowledge. Uh, so we should want to understand and write about and talk about the scientists that are currently involved in the United Arab Emirates Hope Mars mission, as you mentioned. And this is important also so that we can inspire our young people to get into science. I definitely agree with you, Professor Abel, you know, giving more spotlight to the good that's happening um, and the good that, you know, these people are producing and how that can actually act as an encouragement for the rest of society and generations. Uh, right now, we're going to move on to our next co-host and his question. Um, hey, Professor, thank you so much for joining us and uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's really nice. So in terms of uh, um, you, you've, you've talked about the youth. So I wonder how the youth, um, how, in your perspective, what, how do you see that the youth receive um, the concept that you introduced, science imagination? How, how, how does that even work in terms of how how are um, science imagination and also the religious perspective linked together in, and also in the terms or the lens of, of youth at the same time? Thank you. I think a lot of young people, they are put off by science because they feel, oh, science is hard and science is boring and science is all about mathematics and all about equations and being in a laboratory all day sort of doing experiments again and again and again and again and again and again in order to find out something small that is new uh, and so on. So I think a lot of young people, they feel just it's, it's hard, right? And you plus you need to get good grades and be good at school. And then you need to get a bachelor's degree and then you need to go to get a master's degree. And then you need to get a PhD degree. And then if you're lucky, you get hired by a laboratory or university, but even then often you don't become very rich <laughs> either, right? Uh, so I think young people have this, this view of science that it is hard not very exciting and perhaps not very rewarding. I want to emphasize that the imagination is also part of science, right? Uh, that science is not just about finding out the facts and uh, it's also about imagining things that are not there and might not be there, right? Uh, 
it's conceiving uh, that we could go to certain places, right? Before we can go to Mars, we have to imagine going uh, to Mars. Before we can discover alien life, we have to imagine what alien life could be like and all the different ways that maybe life can exist so that we can try to detect it, right? Uh, so uh, with the imagination, I want to, want to say that young people who want to be creative, they can also be, uh, become a scientist. That being a scientist is a very creative profession. And I work at an art school, the Virginia Commonwealth University School of the Arts. And a lot of people think, well, that you are either a scientist or you're an artist, but you can't be both. And you have to choose. Either you study mathematics and physics uh, and so on, or you study colors and uh, images and, uh, uh, and forms of media. And I want to really say that Yes, you, you can be a scientist and interested in numbers uh, and so on and equations and also still imagine things that are not yet there. Imagine a future that we could build or a future that we could find somewhere in the universe. Thank you, Professor. Uh, speaking of imagination and people wondering things, um, what are some of the struggles that you find when you're trying to research or document scientific research here in the Middle East, especially when you encounter topics such as evolution that can be quite controversial? And what do you recommend to journalists who are trying to do a good job of covering such topics here in the region? Thank you. That's a really good question. I mean, obviously, I understand that journalists are under a lot of pressure, not least time pressure. Uh, in an ideal world, journalists would have the time and would take the time to talk to as many different people as possible. Talk to everybody, perhaps, who can offer a valuable perspective on a new uh, discovery or new development. Uh, so if you are a journalist and you want to write about evolution, maybe don't just interview one biologist and don't just interview three biologists. Instead, try to interview as many people as possible uh, with different perspectives and write about them and their views in one article, right? Bring them together, right? Unfortunately, too often I feel and many biologists only talk to other biologists and they talk in their technical language and they talk in English and they talk at their conferences and their peer reviewed journals and so on. So they are in their own bubble um, and they only reference each other. And then we have the religious scholars, the Rijal uh, the or the Da'iyat, uh, the uh, female uh, missionaries. Uh, and often these ulama, these religious men, they write in Arabic. Uh, and they only talk to one another and they only listen to one another and they only cite material Arabic. They uh, will cite the Quran and they will cite the Hadith and they will cite and footnote 
other ulama, but they don't cite enough uh, the the research papers in English, right? So we have these two communities that, um, yeah, are in some ways in their own discursive space, uh, in their own bubbles. Scientists only talking to one another in one language, and the religious scholars only talking to each other in their own language. And I think it's the obligation perhaps of a really good journalist that you can try to be somebody who facilitates a dialogue, a dialogue between religious scholars and scientists and a dialogue with the public too, uh, so that we don't, so that the public does not see, let's say evolution and religion as separate or as contradictory, uh, but um, yeah, in some ways in a dialogue. Thank you so much, Professor Detterman, for a, such a critical and insightful conversation. You have shown us today that science is more broader than we can ever imagine. Um, that leads us to the end of our episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Science Journal Podcast. Don't forget to visit our Instagram page, sciencejournal.qa. This episode was produced by Anto Mohsen, co-hosted by Nadia Lhinai, Alyssa Maflah, Hakim Al-Maghdad, and edited by Asma Naqib, Nadia Lhinai, Alyssa Maflah, Hakim Al-Maghdad, and Ahmed Jassim. Graphics and artwork by Ahmed Jassim. <laughs>